Hey, y'all, it's Jackie on the Jackie Always Unplugged podcast, and today we're jumping back in our series on friendships. I'm going to be exploring male and female relationships and answering the question, can men and women be friends? I know for some of you, you're yawning like, oh, of course the answer, Jackie, is yes. But for many of us, we've been taught that men and women can't be friends, and that has impacted our families, our social life, and even our vocations and careers. I would argue that the Christian community's answer to that question has been quite anemic, very wanting, and even unbiblical. Welcome to the Jackie Always Unplugged podcast, where we're having off-the-record conversations. I'm Reverend Dr. Jackie Reese, founder and president of the Marcella Project. As a pastor, preacher, and thought leader, I've walked with women of faith for decades and had thousands of conversations about what women encounter solely because they are women. At work, family, their faith, with relationships, sex, the church, their bodies, and Jesus. On this podcast, we're going to be asking hard questions, dealing with real issues, and revisiting scripture with a new lens. These conversations are going to put words to your female experience. They're going to ennoble you as Jesus intended and encourage you to bring your full self to the table. It's here we're going to reshape our view. Welcome back. Let's let's talk theology. Let's talk about what we've been handed, why, and how that's impacted us. Um, and I hope somewhere in this I can offer what I think is a bigger and better story about male-female friendships. Let me start by saying I have concluded that the Bible promotes, actually promotes, healthy mixed-gendered friendships. Um, I might even go so far to say is it, it it could potentially be the biblical template for God's strategic team sent into the world to bring about goodness. And I have experienced male friendships, both in my vocation and in my social life. I mean, I remember one time when Steve was traveling to Africa and my son Hampton like disappeared into the night. I didn't know where he was. I didn't know what to do. I had other kids at home, so I called Brian. Brian left his family, came to my family, and spent the night looking for Hampton. And when he found him, he spent even longer hours talking to Hampton. That's what male friendships can be like. And I remember Pastor Andy, right? He was my male pastor, and he's the one that encouraged me to preach from the pulpit. He told me I was the right one for this time in history for their church. And it was Dr. Haddon Robinson that came alongside me in my doctoral class. I mean, he challenged me to think about what it means to preach from a female perspective, from my female experience, with my female voice. And it was Troy, another guy in my class, who like challenged my lack of humility. Yeah, that was a tough one. And then it was Ray I called when I needed leadership advice on how to lead board meetings. I mean, I was clueless and he was so good at it. My brother helped me be a better leader. And sometimes when I just need food and fellowship, well, I get in the car and I go over to Greg's. He's a fabulous cook. And these brothers and others, have they have cheered me on. They've enabled me to run my arduous race. I need my brothers and they need me. And I think the same goes for you. The problem is we don't really know what to do, particularly in the Christian community with with male-female relationships that go outside of, extend beyond marriage. Um, 
You know, it's been said, and I think this is interesting. It's been said that God's chosen people, the Jews, have suffered persecution more than any other people group in history. And they'll even point to like Genesis 3.15, where, where God says there would be enmity between the woman and his seed, which would be Jesus. And, and later in Matthew 2, we see where King Herod tries to kill all the male children in Bethlehem under the age of two, hoping to suppress the coming of the Messiah. And others interpret Revelation 12, the dragon and the woman giving birth, as the similar theme of of the Jewish people being persecuted because they are the people group from whom will bring forth the Savior of the world. And I find that interesting, and I think there's something to that. I don't know if it's really true or not, but I do look at what's going on between men and women throughout history. And if I look at that, I think, well, wow, I that might be the most persecuted group. This, this angst between male and female. I mean, you don't have to look far to see the heinous violent acts against women committed, uh, committed against women done by men, right? We have rape, domestic violence, child brides, burning brides, sex trafficking. I could go on and on. The evidence could lead us to conclude what psychiatrist and author Dr. Kurt Thompson concludes. And this is what he said. There is no older form of injustice than between men and women. This is the war that is the most ancient. And if that's true, and I kind of believe it is, then we have to ask, what's the evil one so afraid of? Why is he working so hard to keep male and female friendships, relationships, fragmented, violent at war? I mean, what's at stake here for him? And I think Carolyn Custis James gives us a clue when she talks about the blessed alliance, what God was creating in the beginning in Genesis 1 and 2. And here's what she says. I'm going to read her quote. She said, God designed the world to stand on two load-bearing walls. You don't have to be an engineer or a building contractor to know not to tamper with those load-bearing walls. Knock down the load-bearing walls and you'll bring down the whole roof. The first load-bearing wall is God's relationship with his image bearers. Without this vital relationship, we are cut off from our life supply, homeless, stranded souls in the universe, left to guess at who we are and why we are here. The second load-bearing wall is the blessed alliance between male and female. Having created his male and female image bearers, God blessed them and then spread them before the global mandate to rule and subdue on his behalf. She goes on to say, according to Genesis, male and female relationships are a kingdom strategy designed to be an unstoppable force for good in this world. This means the enemy's first assault in the garden was beyond brilliant. One lethal blow and both load-bearing walls collapsed. God's image bearers were cut off from their creator and divided from one another. I think Carolyn is onto something profound. Male and female relationships. And I'm not just talking about marriage because I think in the garden, the first thing we need to see in male and female is community, even potentially sibling relationships before we move on to a marital relationship. We tend to only see the Genesis passage in light of marriage. I would argue we've got that backwards, community first, but that's a whole other podcast. The point I'm trying to make is that the male-female relationships that we see in Genesis are supposed to be what we see in every area of society today. They are God's kingdom strategy, God's unstoppable force for good. 
And if that's true, then it seems likely this would be the evil one's greatest fear and biggest target. By the way, I think the evil one is afraid of a he for she community. And I think that's partially why we have all these false narratives about male and female friendships, relationships, all these things that I just don't even think are biblical. And I want to look at like two messages we receive that keep male and female at war, keep us from actually being that load-bearing wall that God intended in this world that we live in. The first is this false narrative around what it means to be the ideal biblical man and woman. The ideal biblical man, in case you didn't know, is that man is to be strong, independent, self-reliable, able to provide, unemotional, and decisive. We teach that men are, by design, more analytical and logical and therefore more suited for leadership, I mean. How do you think that narrative impacts the male-female relationship in the workplace, in the home life, in relationships with our social friend, with our friends? Like, how does that narrative impact us? Because in Genesis, we see that male and female were both given authority and power to rule. Both were called to subdue and fill the earth together, it says, In the garden, we see um, that they were given authority and power, and yet they were also vulnerable. And this is a really interesting concept. I know it may not make sense yet, but hang in there with me for just a minute. We see vulnerability in the garden before Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis 2, 25, we read, The man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. The word naked here refers to being physically naked. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's more than just being physically naked. It's spiritually naked, emotionally naked. It's this idea of being relationally vulnerable, socially vulnerable, psychologically, economically. It's all of it. What we observe is vulnerability between the genders. And Dr. Beverly Harrison, a world-renowned scholar on Christian social ethics calls vulnerability the willingness to be deeply affected by another. Brene Brown defines vulnerability as uncertainty, risk, and emotional exposure. The root of the word in Latin uh, means to wound, capable of wounding, to be open to attack and damage. And so what we see in Genesis 1 and 2 is that male and female were vulnerable with one another. Flourishing happens when we embrace both vulnerability and authority together. We notice this in our creator too, by the way. In the garden, God is all-powerful king, right? But he's also vulnerable. He's opened to being wounded by us, the very creation he made. And Jesus, who Ephesians declares is far above all rule, authority, power, and dominion, embraced the fullness of this vulnerability when he hung on the cross. Andy Crouch, one of my favorite theological thinkers, makes the compelling case that we need to embrace both authority and vulnerability in order to lead and live well together. When we live with and and fill out authority, when we live with full authority but low vulnerability, we become exploitative. When we have high vulnerability and low authority, we suffer. When we lack both authority and vulnerability, we withdraw. So he makes the argument that flourishing comes when we embrace both vulnerability and authority together. So what does this mean for us? 
Well, when we teach messages that women are more nurturing, compassionate, and supportive, then we push women towards being vulnerable and away from authority. And when we teach that men are more relational, analytical, and divisive, decisive, we encourage men toward authority and away from vulnerability. And when this happens, both genders lose. Consider how this imbalance between authority, you know, power and vulnerability impacts the the he for she community, both in your workplace, in your home life, and in your friendships. We just have to look at a couple stories. Like if you saw the movie Hidden Figures, it's a fascinating story. It was popular back in 2016. And it's based on a true story of this gifted female um, mathematician named Catherine during the Jim Crow era, who, because of her color and her gender, was dismissed to the back half of NASA's campus, you know, located in the basement. And through a series of events and lots of uncomfortable racial gender tripwires, she's finally allowed to work in the all-white male office. And Catherine's collaboration with her brothers ended up sending a man to the moon. So when women aren't allowed at the table, we miss out on innovations, creations, artistry, culinary wonders, and discoveries. We are all less when women are at the table. One time a male elder came to me after attending a salon I hosted called Can Men and Women Be Friends? And after the hour and a half uh, long conversation, the man shared with me about how prior Prior uh, to his church having elders, they had what they called leadership teams when the church got started, when it was first planted. And that meant both men and women were on these teams. And he said to me, and I'm quoting, we were better when the women were on the team. He said, now we meet as male elders to discuss issues and we come to a conclusion. We go home and we talk to our wives and realize we've missed many aspects that we didn't take into account. By the way, if you have all male elders, I'm here to tell you, you also have female elders on your board that you didn't even elect. They are called the wives of the elders. (laughs) Anyway, so he said they had to get together afterwards, right? Because their wives say to him, well, did you ever consider? Did you think about? And then they realize, oh my gosh, we missed half of this. So they have to go to another meeting to revisit the same topic. Yeah. We need perspectives of both men and women in our boardrooms, in our staff meetings at church, at the highest positions of the Supreme Court, and in our homes. And what happens when men aren't allowed to be vulnerable? You know, after Steve was unexpectedly fired, he, you know, he was raised like this typical American male tried to fix anything, everything, you know how it is, like fix it, fix it, fix it. And and he got fired and he just couldn't fix what was happening to him. And it was during one of the trips in Africa that he called me and he's hyperventilating on the other end of the phone. He's scared to death. And he says to me, Jackie, I don't know what's happening to me. And I was like, "Um, babe, you're having a panic attack. And he's like, no, I'm not. I don't have anxiety. And I'm like, well, you do now. (laughs) I mean, Steve had never had a bad day in his life. And so he didn't know what he was experiencing. And I got to be honest, it took some time for us to talk through some things and for him to read things, to rewrite what he had come to learn and to embrace this newfound vulnerability that he couldn't fix everything, that that at times he was open to to woundedness. It's fascinating because we were at a gathering of men and women when he confidently uh, shared 
what he had gone through, you know, this anxiety and depression that he had gone through over the last year. And everybody around the room, you could just see their body language. They, they were a little hesitant because they weren't sure how to process what this very confident, successful man was sharing. I mean, it was very vulnerable, you know, looks weak kind of information. And then another man, a well-known lawyer in Dallas, shared his story about how he'd spent a year staring out of his posh office on the fourth floor, unable to fully function. No one knew. And a couple years later, Steve was in Philly with another guy. I'll call him Rob. And Rob was this large, statured man with a booming voice who grew up on the rough side of Philly. And Steve could tell that Rob wasn't doing well. But Rob led a megachurch and had to keep up appearances of being strong and capable. Any of you men relate to this out there? When men can't be seen as weak, they live chronically lonely lives. And I would say those men sometimes lead our church, which means the bride of Christ is limping. So we've got some false narratives surrounding this idea of power and authority and vulnerability, and it messes up this ability of of men and women being intimate friends together. But there's another one also, another false narrative that's out there, and this is probably the messiest one that we have, Um, and that's around the issue of sexuality. I know you knew that was coming, right? (laughs) I once met with this female Christian leader who had recently made um, like a significant change in her career and, and I didn't know why that was. And so we were sipping over coffee and I asked her, Hey, what's up with, you know, this transition that's gone on in your life. And she shared with me that her husband had been involved with years of infidelity and now she's in her midlife and she's having to figure out how to reinvent herself. And it was extremely painful conversation for her and for me. You know, I wish uh, that I had only a few of those conversations over the past 30 years, but I haven't. I've had more than I want to have. Um, And, you know, it's common now to read in the news or see on social media figures in the Christian community who have been accused of sexual immorality. It's becoming like common daily stuff. Moral failure is painful. And the rippling effect uh, within the faith community is especially painful sexual immorality happens. It is real. So I want to be sensitive to those of you who have suffered under that fate. But I also want to be faithful to God's heart and his word and his vision for us. You know, our teachings that women are tempestuous and men can't help themselves, they totally cripple and rupture the he for she relationship. I think I've shared this story before, but it begs to be, it just deserves to be said again. Um, in my second year of residency in my doctoral program, um, I, I remained this female problem for the, for the class uh, because, you know, I was in this female body and I was the only female in an all-male environment. And as the only woman, I was housed in a separate place from the men. I stayed in this big, old, musty smelling inn with dark hallways just outside the Boston city limits alone. Felt very, very safe and taken care of. The male students stayed together in this yellow little house adjacent to the inn. And um, to attend class, we'd have to drive 15 minutes down into this area of Boston that was deemed not safe. In fact, a man was literally murdered outside of our building during our residency. 
Um, and that night uh, uh, that I was at the inn, I'd made up my mind. I was going to catch a ride with one of the guys because I didn't feel very secure driving. I'm, I'm willing to admit now I'm a sucky driver and I was afraid of getting lost, ending up in the wrong place. I mean, you name it, it can happen. So the next morning I walked into the breakfast area where all the guys are eating. And I noticed Bill, who's one of, he was a guy in my cohort and he's sitting way kind of in the back. And I was like probably a little anxious about the whole idea of getting down to class. And I was feeling a little anxious. So I, I bursted out across the room, Bill, can you give me a ride to class? And it was like, it was like a movie scene. I mean, everybody just froze, right? With spoons and coffee cups, like suspended in midair. And I thought, Oh my God, you've got to be kidding me. This fear of me, of my womanhood, was actually overshadowing my legitimate fear for my safety. Good Christian men would rather protect themselves, you know, that fear of lust, rather protect themselves than protect a neighbor. There's something upside down about this. And I had kind of had it. I, I wasn't going to let that dominant narrative of danger romance become the landscape for the next two years of my doctoral program. Um, I wanted more for me and I wanted more for them. And so I decided it was time to communicate a new narrative. Uh, I hoped my narrative would put them at ease and it would let us get to learning homiletics together. So standing there looking over the room, I said, Bill, I don't want to have sex with you. I just want to have a ride as your sister in Christ. I don't want to get raped. And it was fascinating. Like there was kind of some chuckles, you know, nervous chuckles, you know how we do that. And also this awkward relief because we had gotten it out there, right? There it was. We're just calling it what it was. We finished eating and I caught a ride with Bill to class. And I guess I don't need to say it, but for those of you who are wondering, no, we didn't have sex in the car on the way to class. Go figure. You know, men and women, we can do this. And I know what some of you are thinking, but Jackie, aren't we playing with fire, you know, with this new narrative? Um, and I understand in light of the exposure of sexual exploitation in Hollywood, uh, from politicians to the pulpit, it's no wonder there's doubt, sense of hopelessness for a different narrative. But again, we're forced to ask, which reality will we live in and fight for? Um, Jesus said that his kingdom is not of this world. So I think we should be looking for something different than what we see in our politicians and in Hollywood, don't you? In our over-sexualized culture, it's no surprise this brother-sister narrative that I'm proposing has gotten lost. But the danger romance narrative, it's not. It is not God's go-to story. It's not what we saw in the Genesis chapters, and it's not what Jesus and Paul promoted. You know, Jesus and Paul used the kinship imagery um, more than any other to depict the new community of faith. This brother-sister-siblinghood metaphor is by far the most frequently used metaphor when referencing the new community of believers. Paul referenced brothers and sisters over 122 times in the New Testament, by the way, you may have a Bible translation that just says, dear brothers, every time you see that, you should add the word sisters, because in that culture, it was known he was speaking to all the men and all the women in the community. The translator made a choice, just knowing that using the male uh, pronoun would somehow also include the women. So you should naturally say to yourself, brothers and sisters, 
122 times Paul uses that metaphor. Compare that to the 45 times he called the faith community the church, or the three or four times he calls her the body of Christ. Now, why does Paul do this? Well, because during New Testament times, the strongest unit of loyalty and affection was between siblings, especially the brother-sister relationship. That brother-sister bond remained strong even after the sister married and left her original home. Paul purposefully used this metaphor to build off what his original audience would have understood about the brother-sisterhood relationship, obligations. Paul said the new faith community would live like each other as like we're like each other were brothers and sisters in antiquity. Paul depicted that as siblings, we would share our material resources. We would show mutuality, such as caring for one another, bearing one another's burdens, admonishing one another. Siblings would show humility to one another, engaging people of all different statuses. That's Paul's point. And my point is the brother-sister narrative is the predominant narrative in the New Testament. That and the fact that it seems to be the lasting relationship that ca- that we carry into the new heavens and new earth, right? It seems fitting that in light of that, because it says in Matthew, we're not going to be married, we're not having more children. And so it seems to me the logical conclusion is that in the new heavens and new earth, we're still male and female. The relationship that carries into that uh, eternity is male, female, brother, sister, So if that's the longest lasting relationship, shouldn't we figure out how to live that way now as we move into eternity? I think so. And this is what I offered up to my friend uh, that I was having coffee with that day, the colleague who shared how her husband had been unfaithful. And I was sharing with her that this is God's vision for the church. And she listened intently. And then she said, well, that may be true but I haven't seen it very often. And she might be right. We don't see it that often. I wonder if it's because we've so bought into false narratives that we've started to live in that fallen narrative rather than God's redemptive vision for for male and female. It might be that the evil one's done a a superb job of crippling God's story of he for she, right? But If we look, and I think we need to start looking closer, if we look, we actually do see the blessed alliance. We see it in the Old Testament between Deborah and Barak. We see it in the New Testament with Jesus, his relationship with Mary Magdalene. And then we have Paul and Phoebe. In the early church, we have St. Jerome and Marcella. In the medieval times, we have St. Francis and Calaire. In the present time, we have me and Greg and my husband, Steve, and my friend, Amy. And I suspect if you really thought about it, you could share a few names of blessed alliances that you see too. They're out there. They're in scripture. They're in history. And they're in our lives. So if the dominant model in scripture is siblings, then how do we shift these false narratives to better reflect God's vision? That's really the question we need to answer. And I think first and foremost, we start by engaging in the conversation. And thank goodness, since the Me Too movement and the Church Too movement, those conversations have have started to happen a lot more frequently. Um, 
But I, I don't think we need to have some moral failure, some you know traumatic ex- event uh, to, to cause us to have these conversations about, hey, how are we living as brothers and sisters? And are we actually living biblically in a way that reflects God's vision? I think we can have them in everyday conversations, you know, kind of normal. And I remember when I was in the staff meeting at, at, at the church I was on staff with, and I was new there, there we weren't used to having a ton of women in the staff meeting. And, and this guy, Mike, uh, who was a friend of mine, was sitting next to me. And when I talk, I tend to touch people on the hand or whatever, shoulder, you know, I just touch kind of that New York attitude. My hands are moving. And, um, and I touched Mike while I was talking. And that night when we got home, Steve said to me, you know, Jay, you, you really, you really can't be touching Mike when you talk. And I was like, why not? And he goes, because guys think that that's like some kind of signal that you're interested. And I was like, really? I thought, that's not okay. So I called Mike. <laughs> I said, hey, Mike, um, this is what Steve said to me. And I just need to be clear to you. I probably will always touch you and never, ever will it mean I want to have sex with you. Like, we're just siblings. We're brother and sister. I'm just, is that good? And he's like, uh, uh, yeah, that, that's fine. <laughs> Poor guy. You know, I and mean, we can just have these conversations. I one one time I walked into a meeting and there was a guy named Jason there, handsome younger man, and he had on this shirt that just popped his eyes. I mean, it was beautiful. And I thought, you know what? Men need to know they look handsome or beautiful, just like women do. And I thought, you know what? I'm going to tell him. And I said, hey, Jason, as your sister, I just want you to know that color, man, that looks good on you. And I've just gotten in the habit of saying these kind of things and trying to encourage my brothers that we can have this this connected friendship without it being um, sexual or without them feeling threatened by my my femininity, my female body. You know, we can just have those ordinary conversations. It's interesting now that I've gotten older, I don't have to clarify quite as much because my grandma wrinkles seem to be doing the talking for me. But the point I'm trying to make is that we have to listen for those false narratives. We have to identify them, expose, challenge, and even suggest very slightly, a slight suggestion of an alternative story, a bigger and better God-sized story. I remember one time this man came into my husband's office and he introduced himself to me. And in the middle of our discussion, he shared that he had a 16-year-old daughter that he was never going to allow out of the house because he's a man. And he knows that all men are pigs. That's what he said. Like, hey, welcome. Nice to meet you. And let me tell you this thing. And I was like, wow, that's something. He said it like it was a fact, you know, like there was no debating it. And I gently inquired if he was a Christ follower. I kind of already knew he was because Steve had told me previously. But I, I just wanted to know what his worldview was before I started commenting. And, and he said, yeah, he was. And so I gently but firmly kind of asserted that he couldn't say that about himself, that he was a pig, that that's not true. And it's not true of my husband, Steve, and it's not true of my boys, Hunter and Hampton, or my friend, Greg, or Brian, or Ray. And you know why I can say that? Because my brothers are image bearers, and I'm not going to reduce them to some animalistic characterization or behavior. It's not who they are. They're image bearers, Genesis 1 and 2 tells me. And Paul says they can have the mind of Christ and they have the same Holy Spirit, which, by the way, had the power to resurrect the Christ. So, you know, he's got that power living in him. I think he can live more than, I mean, the bar is so low when we say you can't live like anything but a pig. Come on, dude, right? You're not a pig. 
And I said this to him, all of that, like all the theology behind it. And he just stood there a little speechless. I sure I think he's thinking, how do I get out of this office? I could tell he'd never had a woman raise the vision for men. You know, we, we women nag and we say statements to force men to change, but I wasn't doing that. I was fighting for him, the best version of himself. And I think it wooed him because Jesus's real story does that, woos us, doesn't it? And I'm aware that these conversations um, can run into some resistance. I've been I've incurred that many times, bringing up the theology of brother, sister, and how we should be able to be friends, intimate friends, in fact. I mean, how can you encourage one another, challenge one another, be bear one another's burdens, um, which we are called to do in the church, even brothers and sisters? How are we supposed to do that if we keep up all these huge walls? Um, it, it can re- invoke all kinds of strong reactions. I know that. So I, I, I suggest we walk with humility, right? We, we grasp that conflict is inevitable. Combat is optional. And um, recently I spoke on a panel alongside two Muslim leaders, imams, about violence against women. And both men were extremely gracious, but I knew that some of what I was going to say would offend them. And so I treaded boldly in humility, depending on the spirit's leading, so we engage in these delicate matters. We, we rest in knowing that we don't make converts. We don't bring change. God does. God transforms. So, yeah, we just simply challenge or share a narrative that's bigger and better, more accurate of God's vision for men and women. And to women out there, I just want to say we also don't use our bodies <laughs> to gain influence, power, and control, right? In our marriages, in the workplace, et cetera. We can't cry out injustice about being sexually objectified when we then also, when it's to our advantage, use our bodies. We objectify our own bodies for our own advantage. We can't have it both ways, I guess, is what I'm saying. And I think it would behoove us to like help our brothers know we're not a threat. We're not a threat to their masculinity or their morality. Um. We can invite them to come up with work practices that ensure that we're both fully participating in God's kingdom, but both feel secure and safe, right? Like, you know, we don't like there's this whole Mike Pence rule during the 2016 that came out, but actually it's the Billy Graham rule where, you know, men and women can't be together, um, which I I have a little story about that. I, I sat with a pastor one time and he told me he could never get in a car with me, you know, to like to go to any of the events that we were doing as a staff because, you know, men think about sex every 60 seconds, which by the way, is not statistically true. Um, and so I said to him, so do you think, and he told me, it's just how men are wired. It's God designed, right? There's this idea of men are pigs, men can't control themselves, that whole narrative. And, and so I said to him, well, what would you say if, if a woman came to me and she said, Jackie, I have this urge to buy a blouse every 60 seconds. Would you say that it's just God designed that women like to shop and therefore that was normal? Or would you say you have an addiction that's called a problem, right? Um, and so he just stared at me at this whole, like, maybe, maybe that, that, that uh, statement you have there, that narrative you have there is more of an addiction than God's design. Um, so this whole 
Billy Graham rule. It's a big discussion amongst Christian communities, by the way, conservative Christian communities. I know many of you are like, are you kidding me? We're so over that in the workplace. Yeah, well, we back at the church are still having that conversation. Um, and I kind of like um, what Cheryl, and, and, and even more so now that the Me Too Church Two movement happened. What that did for us women was it actually put us in a worse situation in that now men are like, oh my God, I can't even talk to a woman because she's going to misinterpret it. I might lose my job. And so there's even these stronger boundaries right now, which I think is fascinating. <clears throat> but, I, you know, this idea of whether you can meet or dine or travel with a woman, you know, um, it puts us women at a disadvantage um, when it comes to our careers. I don't know if you guys know that. Um, so how can we come up with some innovative ways to work together that also assures security for sexual morality, right? And Sheryl Sandberg, I think, offers an interesting solution. She says, if you don't want to dine alone with a female colleague, fine, but make access equal. Don't dine with anyone alone, she writes. Whatever you choose, treat women and men equally. So we have to be thinking and having these conversations, you know, with, with people we work with. Okay, if that's your view, which let's consider whether that's even theologically correct, then how do we build up uh, boundaries and securities for everybody so that we can actually then function together in our workplace, in our family life, in our social life, et cetera, et cetera, in ways that actually live out biblical truths, encouraging one another, admonishing one another, building one another up, waiting on one another, edifying one another, loving one another. How do we do that? We got to talk about it. We got to talk about it. What I do know is we don't bring change alone. We need each other. We need our brothers and they need us. Um, and that means we need to promote the brother-sister narrative, right? Uh, and I know many of you women out there, you're listening to this and you're weary. I get weary too, a lot. I wonder, is this ever going to change? Are we ever going to get to a place where we can have healthy, mixed, gendered relationships where it doesn't impact my career anymore? doesn't impact, you know, how people view me when I, when I speak in assertive tone, you know, like, are we ever going to get here? Um, I'm mindful of what Paul says in Galatians 6. Let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Change takes hundreds of years, and we see that in the scriptures, right? 400 plus years for the Israelites. They wait in the Egypt, Egypt's womb before God bursts them into a nation. And we have Martin Luther's nailing of the 95 Theses um, on the Wittenberg door back in 1500s. But, you know, if you really, and we, and we mark that 1517 as the beginning of the Protestant Reformation. But in truth, that movement started decades and decades before. And we see this with the civil rights movement and the women's movement, right? Movements towards shalom take time. So for us that grow weary, it's crucial we understand our times, how we fit into it, what part in history we actually play, and to not lose hope. You know, as the prophet Habakkuk says, for still the vision awaits its appointed time. It's hastened to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. So thanks for tuning in. I know this was a long theological discussion about why we are at this time in history where we can't even figure out how to do male-female friendships. It's time. It's time. And in the next two episodes coming up, I'm actually going to talk with my friends. So we have a we have a family group that's 
mixed gendered. And we're going to talk about what it's been like for us to develop these decade long relationships that happen in community, but also happen individually. And then I'm also going to talk to some of my Northern Seminary friends, um, both male and female, all of us, all of us in ministry, to see how we've nav- had to navigate this in, in the faith community. Um, but I want to leave you today with a, a quote. Um, from the author of the book, I See No Stranger, which is one of my very favorite books. And she says this, and here's, I think, my prayer for us as I end today. May we master our world as it is and labor for what it ought to be. Thanks, guys. See you next time. Hey, if you've enjoyed this conversation, then hop on over to themarcellaproject.com and sign up for our email or check out some of our other resources. You can also find me on the Marcella Project Facebook page or on every other platform of social media as Jackie Reese, R-O-E-S-E. Have a great day.